This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Tony Scott, CEO of Intrusion, a Plano, Texas cybersecurity firm, and is the CEO of Tony Scott Group, a Washington, D.C. and Silicon-based consulting and venture capital firm focused on early-stage cybersecurity and privacy technologies. Tony also served in the Obama administration as this federal chief information officer for the U.S. government. So first off, Tony, it's an honor to have you on the show today. It's great to be here and good to talk to you. So, Tony, as you know, our show is about leadership. So let me ask you a basic question. Can you describe your leadership style? Well, I think it's changed over the years and it's changed uh, with different roles. Um, But I think there's some common threads that have uh, gone across all of those. Um, um, And I think one of them is um, I strive for a very collaborative uh, working environment with whatever team I'm working with. And sometimes that has shown up in different ways is what I'm trying to say. So sometimes, you know, you're a leader of a big team. Sometimes you're the leader of a small team. Sometimes you're a leader of an organization where the team reports directly to you. Sometimes you're a leader of a team where it's a team of willing participants, but there's no uh, direct reporting relationship and and so on. And so I think the way that you foster a collaborative environment varies across those kinds of leadership roles and, and uh, in places that you might uh, find yourself. And I, and then I also think it's important to lead by example. So, that's another common thread is, you know, to try to set a good example of the behavior you would like to see uh, across the organization. So those are probably two sort of common things that I've, uh, you know, tried for in the, in the various roles that I've had. So it sounds like you, you alter your leadership style depending upon the organizational size, the situation that's at hand. Is there, has there ever been an event or a lesson that taught you and that you can share about a leadership challenge you faced or an obstacle and how you got through it? Well, there's been many, <laughs> I think, but um, probably it goes back to the earliest, one of the earliest um, jobs that I had in high school and in college. I worked in the field of parks and recreation and that meant in one case, you know, I was a local playground leader running activities for, you know, grade school kids and, and anybody who came to the, to the local park. And that progressed over the years into um, I ran programs for what were called at-risk youth, and I would take them off into camping and, you know, ski trips and try to get them out of the inner city and so on. Um, And in each of those environments, there were always people challenges that 
um, I think a lot of people don't experience early in their careers. And one of them comes to mind in direct response to your question. I was driving by a park one day, a park I had worked at but wasn't currently responsible for. And I saw just out of the corner of my eye a bunch of people running around very frantic. And it just made me instantly aware that there was something really unusual going on. So I pulled my car over quickly, ran into the facility, and I saw a a broken window and blood all over the place. And I knew something bad had happened. And uh, so I followed the trail, as it were, and saw somebody in the bathroom holding their uh, wrists under the sink, washing blood off of their hands. And I'd had first aid training and I immediately kicked in and thought, that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. And grabbed the person, you know, put direct pr- pressure on the uh, where the cuts were and yelled for somebody to call for help. And um, ambulance came. We took the individual off to the hospital and uh, I talked to the doctor afterwards and he told me that he was very thankful as was the individual. And they said, if that person had run their hands under water for one more minute, they probably would be dead. And I've reflected on that moment many times in my career, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, what made me stop, What made me, how did I recognize that there was a a crisis at that moment? Um, You know, why didn't I defer to other people that were around and so on? And I credited it to really good situational awareness. And I've thought about that a lot in other situations, the, the biggest of which was probably the OPM crisis when I was federal CIO. And even in that case, my sense of situational awareness, I think, served me well in terms of, you know, what are the things that immediately needed to be done? And then, you know, how does this play out over some uh, longer period of time? And I could give you dozens of examples where just having good situational awareness served me well. And it's not something that was conscious or you know, deliberate, but it's just been a, a skill I think I've had developed really out of that example that I just gave you. So you brought up the OPM event. Um, some of our listeners may not be aware of, you have were such a great leader in that situation. Can you share a little bit of background about the event and what happened? Sure. So shortly after I assumed the role of federal CIO, somebody came in the office, one of our security people, and told me there had been an issue at the Office of Personnel Management. At that point, we didn't know how big it was, how serious it was, or even exactly what had happened. In the end, what we learned was, after a a bit, was 21 million identities had been compromised uh, by an adversary. And, uh, and these identities were people who had applied for cleared, you know, sensitive positions uh, with the federal government. So obviously this is 
personal information that you don't want uh, to be leaked or or accessed by the wrong people. And so the challenge immediately, and this is where the situational awareness comes in, was you know limit the damage. You know, first of all, understand what happened, limit the damage, and then over time, then focus on what are the root causes of this, and then how do you prevent things like this from happening again by you know making the necessary changes in infrastructure and applications and, and all of those kinds of things. And so within a short period of time, we figured out what happened, responded, I think, appropriately, and then started addressing the root causes, which were the root causes had many mothers and fathers in terms of what they were from funding to technology to process to a whole bunch of other things. But it was a probably 10 years worth of learning in six months that had to occur. Let me make an observation. The two things I see besides situational awareness is calmness in a a crisis, the ability to be able to maintain logic and focus. Do you think this is key uh, leadership attribute that is needed in any large organization? I really do. And and, um, I'll refer to another experience I had. I I worked for Marriott Corporation at um, what were then... uh, a theme park business that Marriott ran. We had two parks, one in Santa Clara, California, and one in Gurney, Illinois. And in the role that I had there, we all, all of the senior management had to take turns being what was called the duty manager. So um, whenever the park was open, uh, some senior member of management had to assume the role of a duty manager, which meant if there was any kind of crisis or uh, event occurring, you had to uh, step in and, and marshal whatever uh, resources we had to respond to the crisis. And the crisis could be, you know, a ride breaks down or could be a weather event or could be, uh, in the case of the Santa Clara Park, we were very close to the San Jose Airport. So it could be, you know, a plane crashing into the park, God forbid. None of those things ever happened, but we had we went through a lot of training exercises to understand how to respond, and we played through in live exercises the simulation of a number of these different kinds of activities taking place. And what you saw, even in the practice exercises, was some people just freak out and you know, freeze and don't know what to do. Other people panic and, um, you know, kind of lose their wits about them. And, you know, there's a a wide variety of human behaviors. But through this training, what, what you learned was calm and rational behavior are needed, especially at the leadership level, to, you know, direct the necessary activities that are going to take place. And again, it goes back to what is the situation? You know, what's the appropriate response? What are the resources I need to go manage that? And then how do we know when the immediate crisis is over? And and how do we sort of get back to uh, normal operating procedure? And so the training that we did during those years, again, I think helped me later on in my 
career uh, building on some core capabilities that um, I had learned. I'm speaking with Tony Scott, CEO of Intrusion and former federal CIO. After a break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication, and why it is important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Tony Scott, CEO of Intrusion and former federal CIO under the Obama administration. Tony, what is the most important type of decisions you can make as a leader of an organization? I think 90% of it are people choices. And I think that, you know, if you get the people choices right over time, the chances of success are greatly enhanced. I've had the pleasure of working with some really great and unusual teams that at first glance might not seem obvious, but in the long run, it became very obvious why that was a great combination. And then conversely, in some cases, look good on paper, uh, turned out to be a not so good combination in terms of actual performance. And it all came down to, you know, people choices, personality, and some style uh, kinds of issues. So you have a variety of people that you work with, but do you change the way you approach how to decide what you do? Do you make decisions by committee or do you think a leader just should make them or do you change based on the situation? Well, in my own experience, it's been, you know, you start with a role or a job description and there's certain things that are just sort of table stakes that you need given role. But I've also always been open to, I'll call it the surprise or the uninvited guest, if you will. So I'll give you one example. When I was at Bristol-Myers Squibb, we had worked with a headhunter um, who'd done a really good job of uh, recruiting people into our team and was somebody I had learned over a year or two to trust his judgment in terms of the people he was referring to us. And at Bristol-Myers Squibb, we had at that point, a pretty much a solid requirement that people have for the kind of role we were recruiting for, both an undergraduate degree and um, we preferred to have somebody who had a graduate degree of some kind. And so all of the resumes we were getting were from the recruiters, including this one, were people who met those requirements. But he called me one day and he said, I've got a guy who has a high school diploma. Um, he doesn't have any college and he doesn't obviously have a graduate degree. But for the area you're recruiting for, this is the best guy I've ever seen, bar none, in terms of what he's accomplished on the job and just his personality and everything about him. I really like this guy. You got to talk to him. And, you know, I had this sinking feeling in, in my stomach when he told me this because I was not convinced that I was ever going to get our human resource department and my superiors to approve hiring somebody who just had a high school diploma. But because I trusted this guy, I said, I'll give him a shot and, you know, we'll see what happens. The guy came in and he blew me away. 
I was even more impressed than the forecast from the recruiter would have made me think. And I became such a fan that it was game over. As soon as I talked to this guy, I said, we got to get this guy. We got to figure out a way. So I went in, talked to my boss. He had the same initial reaction that I did. But as soon as he interviewed this person, he became convinced. We made the hire. And I'll tell you, even to this day, this was one of the top hires I've ever made entirely in my whole career, right up there in the top one or two or three people that I've worked with. And he he was just an, an inspiring person to work with and work around and uh, have as a part of the team. And he literally lifted the entire team. And if we'd stuck to our thesis that you had to have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in a rigid way, we'd never would have hired him. And I think about that person every time when I'm interviewing somebody who doesn't quite fit the mold of what we have put in the job description or the way we've thought about a role. And I'll say more than once, I've deviated from the norm, taken a bet, and uh, it's paid off in almost every uh, single case. How have your focus and time horizon changed as you've taken on more senior positions? Well, I, I think that's also varied. You know, every role comes with you know, if you do sort of a SWOT analysis and look at where you are and kind of the strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and, and threats, sometimes you find that there's, you know, lots of short-term things that need to be done and, and it's hard to even focus on the long-term till you get some of the short-term things resolved. And then in other cases, it's almost all long-term. Everything's running fine now, but you realize that there's some uh, existential threats coming at some point in the future. So I would say my experience at Disney and Microsoft are examples of some of those cases where everything was running along pretty nicely uh, when I got there, but we knew our business was going to dramatically change. In the case of Disney, it was you know, streaming was coming. And and at that point we were making all of our money on selling DVDs and Blu-ray discs and so on. But we knew that wasn't going to last. And every part of our application infrastructure, the way we ran the business was going to be impacted by a completely different business model than the one that we were currently in. Same thing at Microsoft. You know, we made tons of money selling licenses, you had a little sticky, a little sticker on the bottom of your PC that was our certificate of authenticity and license for, you know, an operating system. And, and, you know, we bought uh, Word and Excel and and what have you. And it got shipped on a CD-ROM and we knew cloud was coming and we knew software as a service was coming and we literally had to change everything that we did for the long term to adopt to a new business model. So um, two examples of, you know, longer term, but existential threats if we didn't, uh, you know, get it right. 
at this stage in your career, what are your thoughts of managing versus leading? I mean, you've had just such an incredible career. Do you think there's a big difference? You, you talk a lot about people. I think there is a, a big difference. Um, you know, I think managing is, I think of as a lot of dials that you have at your disposal. And, you know, you can turn the knobs on the dials and, and sort of fine tune the way uh, an organization runs. But leading is, in my view, really more about style and strategy and, and again, leading by example in terms of what people observe and, and how they interpret your presence on the planet, if you will. And I, I think leadership has a lot to do with the tone that you set, which if done right, others will follow and collaborate in a better way. So to me, there's sort of a, a big difference. Uh, one does obviously impact the other. If your leadership style is at odds with the way you manage, then there's going to be a big problem and, and conversely. I'm speaking with Tony Scott, CEO of Intrusion and former federal CIO under the Obama administration. Coming up next, we'll talk about a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Tony Scott, the CEO of Intrusion and former federal CIO under the Obama administration. Tony, getting organizations to adopt change is one of the biggest leadership changes that you can face. Uh, earlier in the uh, prior segment, you talked a little bit about change and, and having to uh, adopt different leadership styles underneath that. How do you approach leading change uh, or a major change to an organization? I mean, especially when you were a leader in the federal government, uh, where maybe time horizons get in the way of short-term decisions versus long-term decisions, the reality of what you can really affect? Well, I think, you know, it's incumbent on leaders to make the case for change in a way that the organization can adopt and make their own. And I'll give you an example out of my experience. I was working for Sun Microsystems and at the time, uh, we had introduced a new computer chip called Spark to power our workstations, but the bulk of our business was on a Motorola chip, the 68,000 family of microprocessors. And there was a lot of confusion in the organization about what the future was going to be. You know, we had two different product development teams. We The sales teams had been selling the 68,000 based workstations for a long time. We had a lot of software that had already been ported to run on the 68,000 family. Uh, it was our bread and butter. Uh, you know, it was a pretty well oiled machine. And yet we'd made the strategic investment and decision to move to Spark. And, you know, being there, you could sort of feel the tension in the organization because there was this kind of confusion about what the future was going to be or what the mix was going to be between these two families. And Scott McNeely, our CEO, got up and got the whole company together and said, all the wood behind one arrowhead, it's spark. I want to end any confusion about what we're doing and where we're going. And that was sufficient enough direction that what it told the 68,000 team is, make transition plans. 
figure out a way to go, you know, move customers from that platform to the new platform. And it, and it wasn't immediate. We weren't going to discontinue the product or product support, you know, the next day. But it created a sense of urgency to say, this is where we're going and there shouldn't be any confusion about it. And let's move forward. And it was a moment of clarity for the entire Sun Microsystems organization. Now, I'm sure there were people who didn't agree with that, you know, who, do, who might have made a different choice. But it was clear, it was concise, and it was something that needed to happen. And it was unambiguous in terms of what everybody had to go do. And I remember the day after Scott got up and, and said that, there was a calmness about the in the organization about now we know what we're doing. We know, you know, where true North is and we can all go do the appropriate work that needs to be done. And I see that a lot in organizations where, you know, there's kind of a direction or a sort of a strategy or, you know, a half baked notion. And I've tried to always, wherever I can try to find those moments of clarity to make it as clear and unambiguous as possible in terms of what our mission is and where we're trying to go and and what we're trying to accomplish. And I think, you know, leaders benefit when, and the whole organizations benefit when, when you can get to those moments of clarity. Certainly moments of clarity and understanding the focus is key, communication and leadership. But there's a spirit of leadership that helps organizations to accomplish things that most others might think would be impossible. How do you see that from your leadership style and how do you uh, how do you implement that? Because you've gotten some teams through some pretty tough times like that OPM story. Well, I think I guess it's some combination. There's a recipe for a lot of it's just hard work. A lot of it's, you know, being creative and finding, you know, the right resources to apply to any given situation. I think there's some element of a sense of humor and not taking yourself too seriously all the time. You know, there's a way to make even the most tacit or drudgery fun in some way. And then I think there's some element in the recipe of taking corrective action and learning from uh, the mistakes that you make along the way. One of the guys I worked for a long time ago often said, you know, if you find yourself riding a dead horse, best to dismount. And I think that's one of the key lessons for me was try something, but by gosh, if it doesn't work, dismount and try something else. So I think there's been a a pretty good element of that in my own journey is be willing to make mistakes, but also be willing to admit errors and move on and find something that works better. The world is contending with a number of challenges, uh, economic uncertainty, rising inflation, the war on Ukraine, food insecurity, the energy crisis, all the cybersecurity issues, the lending pandemic. Organizations to get through this right now have to have resilience. They need to build that muscle. What do you think? How can a business emerge stronger in this crisis to withstand future uh, you know, shocks and And what do you think the key is to building that resilience as a leader? 
Well, I think it's probably a couple of things that we've already talked about. One is great situational awareness. You know, having the sensors, whether they're personal or digital or organizational, environmental or economic or, you know, whatever uh, is necessary that's relevant for the business or the environment that you're in, um, you know, make sure you got good sensors that let you know as far ahead of time as possible or as near real time as possible what's changing or, or what's moving in the environment. Um, second thing I think is good preparation. As I mentioned in the theme park example, the fact that we practiced routinely handling various kinds of emergencies meant that should one come along, we were going to be better prepared to deal with it than if we didn't uh, practice. And I'm fond of saying, you know, you don't get to Carnegie Hall as a musician without practice, you know, play in the Super Bowl without a lot of practice getting you there. You don't excel at most things in life without a heck of a lot of practice and rehearsal and sort of dedication to the task at hand. And, and so I think, you know, dealing with these things requires exercising that muscle, the, the, the practice of doing things. Um, and of course, you know, you're never fully prepared because everything is usually a one-off and there's some combination of things that you didn't anticipate. But with practice, you can separate out the things that you have practiced for and know exactly what to do from the things that are urgent and necessary that are unique to that situation and focus on those things and the rest of the things you can work with, you know, from muscle memory, if you will. So I think that's my best advice to organizations or even individually as we face all of these challenges going forward. And with all of those challenges, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think that advances in technology, advances in material science, advances in our understanding of what's happening around us in the long run will help us as a society and as a, you know, as human beings on, on this planet. And as Obama was fond of saying, history is not a smooth art. It has its advances. It has its moments of disruption. But if you look at the long arc of history, it marches forward. And I absolutely believe in that. You know, I, I know that your focus today is on cybersecurity. Um, do you think that will be the biggest challenge for the government uh, going into this post-pandemic era? I think it's one of the big challenges. And it has its roots in translating things that were analog in all of human history, moving to a digital context that we haven't fully understood what the rules should be. You know, human interaction has always for a long time been based on trust. And and we do things as humans that, you know, we'll, we'll do more things the more trust we have. We'll do less things the less trust we have. Our interactions are all governed by some level of trust and verification. And we've yet to translate those things from that analog world 
that's our human experience into the, the sort of digital experience that all this technology around us enables. Um, so whether it's your sense of privacy or protecting uh, information, all of that has to mature in a digital way to support our human uh, experience. And I think we're unfortunately just in the very early days of that, even as we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on cybersecurity, I don't think we've fully made the the right transition or morphed our into that, you know, full digital world. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Tony Scott, CEO of Intrusion and former federal CIO under the Obama administration. Next, we'll find out Tony's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Tony Scott, CEO of Intrusion and former federal CIO under the Obama administration. So, Tony, in one of your previous interviews and earlier in the show, you talked about the OPM breach. It was one of the worst days of your career. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing what one of the best days was. Well, fortunately, there's been many. Probably a, a couple of the most memorable were day one on the job as federal CIO. You know, I showed up at uh, Eisenhower Executive Office Building, got my badge. Uh, they showed me where the office was learned where the bathroom was and, you know, where to get lunch and all the things that you typically do um, on your first day on the job. And one of my uh, staff came to me and this was about 11 o'clock and said, um, Oh, by the way, we have a meeting with the president in the Oval Office at one o'clock. And, you know, (laughs) you can imagine the, emotion, you know, that runs through your head uh, at that particular point. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, what are we meeting about? Are we prepared? What questions should we prepared? We'd be prepared to answer. I mean, this moment of panic sort of ran through me. And my team said, we got it. Don't worry about it. This is a meeting that's been longstanding on the books. It'll be fine. So, after lunch, we march into the Oval Office. We take our seats. Uh, we're presenting to the president uh, a website that had been created to show how many visitors were using federal websites in real time at any given moment. And uh, it was running on an iPad and a very cool-looking site and, and, and so on. And the president asked a bunch of good questions you know, the meeting went on for, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes, and we marched out. Pete Souza, who's the, who was the official photographer, happened to be in the room up on a ladder and took a picture of all of us sitting there in the Oval Office on the first day for me on the job. And it's one of the prized memories I have of of the entire time that I was there. Little did I know OPM was going to happen a couple of weeks later, but um, it was certainly a awesome moment. And when I look at the picture today, I have this sort of glazed look on my face because I remember thinking at 
the time, is this a dream or am I really sitting in the Oval Office talking to the President of the United States? And uh, it just was a incredibly a fantastic moment. A couple of years later, as the administration is coming to an end, we all show up in the Oval Office to get our picture taken with the president is sort of a going away thing, if you will. And uh, I remember that moment as well. Like this is the end of a really incredible experience. And, uh, and so those two moments in particular stick out in my memory. You know, Tony, you've had such an incredible career path. Uh, could you describe your career? It hasn't been a straight line. <laughs> so no. you, not at all. Can you describe your career path? And, and if a listener was inspired and wanted to follow in your footsteps, become that CIO of the federal government or to, you know, be the CIO of, of Disney. I mean, I just, you know, there's just so many milestones. Um, what advice do you have for them? How would you get started? It's actually the question I hate the most, Eileen, because uh, I don't really have a good answer. Um, I, I, I will say two things. One is I never planned on any of this. Um, I always assumed that whatever role I had at the moment was the role I was going to be in for the rest of my life. And I should probably just um, do the best job I could in that particular role. And then out of the blue, other opportunities came they were never I, I haven't applied for a job in since I was in my 20s I don't think an opportunity always just came along out of the blue in an unexpected way and if anything I guess I always have been a little bit of a risk taker and and thought well what the heck what's the worst that can happen um, you know I could always fall back and go back to doing what I was doing before. So that's really the only advice I can give is everybody has a different risk tolerance. I think you need to understand what yours is uh, as an individual and then act appropriately. And in my case, I was willing to take some risks in terms of changing industries, changing career, a whole wide variety of things along the way. Um, but Again, none of it was planned, and as a result, I've ended up in some very unexpected places uh, along the way. Like the White House. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, you know, the technology is changing. You have a very unique vantage point now as um, somebody who helps, you know, startup companies. If you were, uh, you know, uh, somebody in college right now who is going to focus on on a on a, my, a major or a minor or or in a career path, where would you say is the best areas to focus? Well, I, I think, and this is going to sound a little self-serving, maybe, but um, we need people in cybersecurity who have backgrounds in a whole bunch of different areas. Um, we need people who have manufacturing expertise. We need people who have medical expertise. Um, we need people who have agricultural expertise. We need people who have mining expertise and oil and gas. And, you know, you name the field, 
we need people who have expertise in some core area of, you know, science or commerce or, uh, or what have you. And, and we need teachers who have cybersecurity experience. So I would say the best advice I could give somebody is, you know, pick your major, but pick cyber as a minor or pick cyber as your major and some other field as your minor. And I can pretty much guarantee you you'll have a really interesting job uh, in career going forward. It touches so many areas and we need the diversity of education and experience to really do a good job in the broad area of cybersecurity. So that would be my advice. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Tony Scott. Tony, I, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. My pleasure. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot